show of hands, anything going on that you'd like us to join and lift you up in faith tonight? Anybody online, if you would uh, just uh, post in the comments, we'd love to agree with you and believe for God to do a miracle in your life and show up right where you are. So if you can stand with me, stand with me. If not, that's perfectly fine. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight. We thank you that we're able to come to you. We thank you that we have an invitation to enter into your throne room and make a petition to you. I pray right now you know every situation going on in everyone's lives, even the things that we're not aware of yet. I pray that you would meet us where we are, that you would remind us that you are right in the midst of everything that we go through, everything that we deal with. You're not some far-off distant God, but you are in the midst of it. You are grieving with us processing with us, and I pray that you would just continue to show up in our lives each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, once again, I'm glad you're here. My name is Pastor Devin. I'm the Associate Pastor for Connections and Outreach and Assimilation and just anything else that you want to put on my title that's perfectly fine with me. So uh, I'm going to jump in tonight. Pastor Mike has been doing a series called Standing on Promises, and he asked me to pick up where he left off. And what he asked me to tackle tonight was the promise of peace. And I'll be very honest with you and say that I wrestled with this one quite a bit. I wrestled with it because while I believe the Bible does promise peace, and we'll get into that, the world doesn't always seem to say the same thing. Life and reality that we face doesn't always seem to say the same thing. Would would anybody in the room say that you live in constant peace There's never anything that comes against you or causes problems. Just turn on the news for a few minutes, and I'm pretty sure something will disrupt the peace in your life. Well, that was how I felt looking into this. And any time that I tackle a topic, I always like to ask the question, would this work in any type of a setting? In a third world church? In the first century church? Because you know there are things that work in an American church that wouldn't work anywhere else. Right, The prosperity gospel, some of the things that get preached from pulpits in America, they just simply wouldn't work anywhere else in the world. And so I always try to think in that framework. I don't want to just deliver a topic that is only going to help certain people, but I want it to help all of, all of Christianity, all of, all of those who are working out their faith in Christ. And so I started thinking about how did peace, how did that look in the early church? And I started thinking about the persecution that the early church went through. I did a little bit of a study and I started thinking about the apostles and how Andrew was crucified. Bartholomew was skinned alive and crucified. James the Greater was stabbed by a sword. James the Lesser thrown from the pinnacle of the temple, stoned, and then had his head bashed in with a club. Jude was beaten, then crucified. Matthew was staked and speared to the ground. Philip impaled by iron hooks in his ankles and hung upside down to die. Simon crucified and sawn in half. Thomas thrust through with a spear. Mark was dragged to death. Luke was hanged from an olive tree. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, was thrown from a hundred foot wall and then beaten to death with clubs. John died of natural causes, but only after being boiled in oil and banished to a criminal's island. To date, over six, uh, 360 million Christians have been ex- executed for their faith. And as of this year, Christians in 76 out of 195 countries face hostile resistance to their faith. And if you've watched the news and you know what's going on, the war in Israel, currently 1,200 people have been killed in Israel, numbers unseen since the war of 1972. Families have been murdered, women drugged through the streets, and infants mutilated while the attackers celebrate, and many commentators attempt to justify their actions. And here I am attempting to bring a message called the promise 
of peace. You can understand my dilemma and why this was something that I struggled with. I'd actually be more comfortable with a sermon that's called the promise of pain, right? Because we can associate with that. That's an easy one. We all experience pain. In fact, the word pain appears over 70 times in the Bible. Jesus declared, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others uh, revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, for the first 300 years of the church, persecution and martyrdom were just a part of Christian life. First by the Jews, then by the Romans. In fact, martyrdom was considered the ultimate witness and was even sought after by some simply because the experience was so common for the early church that they believed it was a part of their sanctification, almost a rite of passage, if you will. That was what the early church went through. And then we complain about how loud the music is sometimes and where we're sitting. We're not facing coliseums and we're not facing persecution. We're not facing all of these things. We're upset because of the color of the carpet sometimes. That's what we face in the American church. And that's why often things don't translate well to other parts of the world. Where I heard a church, uh, I believe it was in Africa, where there was a flood that came through. And they would come together and worship and, and water was up to their knees. Because of the floodwaters, but they still worshiped. They still, uh, they still praised the Lord because that's what our faith is about. But this is what the early church would have encountered. I'm not here to talk about pain, though. Somehow, some way, I'm supposed to bring you a message about peace in the midst of turmoil. Now, luckily, the Bible is full of stories that do just that. In fact, where pain is talked about 70 times in Scripture... Peace is actually talked about 250 times in Scripture. So there's a lot that we can pull from, but probably the most popular, as I started thinking about this, was Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. This is Jesus calming the storm. Raise your hand if you're familiar with it. If not, it's okay. We're going to talk about it quite in-depthly today. So we're going to read it real quick, and I'll, I'll jump back in and explain some things. But as we read it, I want you to get a mental picture. And this is actually the way that Mark, the writer of this uh, particular account of the gospel, intended for it to be written. He actually used some literary tools that really pulled the audience into it, if you know, to look for it. The original readers would have. And one of those is it says, that day when evening came, now, the way that he does this, it's typical of Mark to do a dual reference in which the second time marker, the evening, is more specific than the first. So, on that day, in the evening, so what is he doing here? In this case, the words indicate that Jesus had been teaching all day. We'll talk about that in a moment. And they help to build suspense. So, get in your mind real quick. If you're watching a, a suspenseful movie, a thriller-type movie, um, and all of a sudden the music changes and you know what's coming. Maybe you've seen the, the Steven Spielberg's movie Jaws, right? The music. You know, you're not, you may not know what's coming, but you know something is about to come. So picture this. This is how Mark wanted us to read it. Jesus has been teaching all day, and he says, let's go across the sea. So they get in the boat, and it starts to get dark. And just imagine, if you will, the suspenseful music. You don't know what's coming. Something's coming. There's something lurking in the water. There's something on the cusp of this event. And you know it's not going to be good. We don't know what it is. 
He's setting us up. He's foreshadowing very strong literary tools here. He said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. He had been teaching in the boat, so now they're going in the boat. There was also other boats with him. A furious squall came up. That's so much better to say than a storm, right? A squall. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Or other translations say, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Other translations say a great calm came over. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now, we've read that story. We've heard it before. But let's just really put ourselves in that place. These are fishermen, and historically, we believe they were pretty young. They were probably in their teens, and they had been fishing for a while, but, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment, why this was a little bit more scary for them than it might have been in other cases, but these are young boys who are following their Messiah and doing what they have been asked to do, and they get caught in a storm. They don't know what to do, and Jesus, the one who told them to go, the one who's been performing miracles and teaching, is sleeping in the boat. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody asks me to do something and they're not very uh, concerned about what's happening, I'm probably going to be a little bit agitated, right? And that's exactly what's happening here. Now, this passage is often presented in isolation, meaning most of the time when we read it, we just read the story of Jesus calming the storm, right? But the context is very important. How is this information presented? How does each author utilize the story? This is one story that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, the story is referenced by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and each of them use it slightly differently. By looking at each of them, we can gain a fuller picture. So all three writers do one thing. They place this story after a sequence of parables. We'll talk about that in a moment. But each writer places it immediately after a vital piece of information. How does Matthew do it? In Matthew, the story is placed right after Jesus declares the cost of discipleship. That's found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Those are pretty strong statements. And it really shows you what the cost of discipleship is. You have to move away from everything that you once held dear and follow me. Pretty strong cases there. For Luke, Jesus declares that his family are those who hear the, king, hear the kingdom of God and put it into practice. Here in Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. But they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Wow. 
His mother and brother are there, and he says, no, my family are those who hear the kingdom of God and put it into practice. Both of those are very strong statements. Mark does something a little bit different. Mark simply places this right after the parables concerning the kingdom of God. Let's talk about these parables. They set the scene for what's happening in the story. The first one is the parable of the, of the sower. And what you can see from Jesus' own statements, he says, if you can't understand this one, how are you going to understand all of the parables, which is another way of saying, if you get this one, you get everything else. This is the linchpin, if you will. If you understand this, the rest of them will make sense. So I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty important. So in this parable, and I'm just going to go through and explain it. We won't, we won't read the whole thing. I'm going to explain it here. The seed that the sower is, is, is sowing is the kingdom, or as the text says, the word. Those on the path so the, the sower goes and he throws some and it lands on the path where people walk. Then he goes and he throws some and it lands on the rocky place that had some grass but not really enough for it to take root. And then some gets thrown where there's thorns and other gets thrown into good soil, right? So those thrown on the path, the birds come down and immediately devour it. Jesus explains that those who hear the word but it's plucked out by Satan, choked out before faith was professed. So those are those who are so deceived, so deceived and they're so caught up in their own sin and their lifestyle that's in rebellion to God that when they hear the gospel message, they don't even give it a second thought. Have you ever encountered someone like that? You've, you, you preach the message, you preach it fervently, but what ends up happening is they hear it, but the cost is too great. This is why it's important that Matthew talks about the cost of discipleship before we get to the calming of the storm. It's kind of a, a similar story that he uses here. The cost of discipleship for them is far too high. They simply can't receive it. Ultimately, the seed is choked out because they don't want to give up they don't want to pay the price, the cost of discipleship. Now, that, that, that fell on the rocky path, there's no depth of soil. It's scorched since it has no roots because of pressure and persecution. These are those who receive the gospel, but they have no depth. Have you ever encountered someone who they had a radical conversion moment? And it might have happened in an altar where suddenly they became so excited about the word of God that they ran down, they gave their life to Christ, they were excited, they were ecstatic, they were preaching to everyone, but it didn't last. Because even though they were excited about it, they didn't go through a process of discipleship. They didn't go through a process of accountability. They didn't begin to study the word and see, okay, I've had this emotional experience, but what do I do with the questions that I have of actually applying it to my life? Those are those on the rocky path. Then there's those that landed in the thorn, choked out from worry. These are those who spend more time watching the news than they do saturating themselves in scripture. We live in an age of information, and I believe firmly that is why the world appears to be so much worse than it used to be, because we know about more. Because we spend too much time on Facebook looking at all the terrible things happening in the world. Many of those things were already happening, we just didn't know about it. Think about, I mean, I, I'm young enough, old enough, however you want to put it, that I remember before you could just pull out your phone. I know I'm young, but I do remember that. I remember that life was a lot more peaceful when you didn't necessarily know everything that was going on. 
But there are some that they make it their point to just sit in front of the the screen and, and get every notification from every news outlet and they begin to worry. Or maybe it's not so much the things outside, but it's things in their life of, I just don't know if God can actually take care of me. I don't know if he's big enough for my problems. I guess I'll just focus my attention on my worry instead of this larger message that I might have received at one point, but now it's choked out because I just couldn't get past the worry. Then there's the good soil. This seed took root. It was deep. The seed was planted well. If, If we have any gardeners in here, you know what happens when the seed gets deep in the ground and the roots begin to take and it begins to grow and it begins to germinate and multiply. That is what you want when you sow a seed. That's those of us who have taken the word seriously. And we've buried it deep in our hearts. And whenever we go through turmoil and we go through difficult seasons, we return to the message that we first received for our inspiration, for our motivation. We turn to Christ for our motivation. That's the good soil he's talking about. Now he says that this, the the, the linchpin, the reason why this is so important is because this and all of the other parables about the kingdom are this. That there's many that will hear it, but not many who will receive it. There has to be good soil. The root has to go down deep. Now, all the parables are about the hearer's ability and inability to receive the message of the kingdom. Now, the next parable is the light under the basket. And you've probably heard this. I know uh, my, my son sings a lot of the, the kids' songs, kids' worship songs, and hide your uh, light under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine, right? We, we hear these, and this is the parable where Jesus begins to talk about a light under a bushel or under a basket. And I've heard this applied many times. I've done it myself where we talk about that this is a parable saying we just need to let our light shine. Right? We just need to be nice people. And we just need to treat everybody with, with a big smile on your face because that's what Jesus would do, right? I need to wear my WWJD bracelet. What would Jesus do? And just be nice to everybody. Let my light shine. That's not what it's talking about at all. You could apply that, but that's not what this is talking about. I've said this before. I'll continue to say it. Use caution when you find yourself to be the center of any part of the Bible. It's not about you. It's about Jesus, which, again, this parable is about. And it's actually very interesting, again, that Mark puts it where he puts it. Because here Jesus, is he's just given a parable about the kingdom. He uses seed and a sower. Now he's talking about a light covered over by a basket. And one scholar that I read said this was not just any ordinary basket. This would have been the basket that a sower would have used to sow seed. And he's saying that that, sow, that basket that's usually full of seed is now turned over on a light, and it's concealing that light. But light is not made to be concealed, it's made to to shine. What Jesus is saying here is that he is the light in the basket. He's been concealed for a time, but eventually he's going to be revealed. He's going to shine. That's what happens after the cross, after the resurrection, they begin to preach his message. Now, why would he use a basket over light after immediately talking about sowing seed? Because he's saying that the seed that's being sowed is the light in the basket. It's not just seed, it's light being sowed. He is that light. Earlier it said the word of the kingdom. He is the word, the lagos. John, in in John chapter 1 says, the lagos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He is the light, the word of the kingdom. When we receive the kingdom, we are receiving Jesus and the fullness of who he is. That is the message. We're not just receiving a, 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 
a, a really good sermon, we're receiving a person. And that person impacts us. And that person changes us. He is the light within the basket. The next parable is the parable of the mustard seed. Again, all of this kind of has some similarities. It's almost like Mark did that on purpose. He did. And the Holy Spirit inspiring him did it on purpose as well. Now we're talking about a mustard seed. The smallest seed out there, but when it's planted and it has time. And it takes time for this tree to grow. It's one of the strongest trees out there. And birds come and they place their nest on it. And what he's saying here as he explains it is that the kingdom is a seed that when planted, it might take time to multiply. But when it's fully grown, it is strong and it's able to withstand the winds and it's able to support us. More importantly here, he says that what the farmer does is he casts this seed and while he's sleeping, it grows. The farmer doesn't make the plant grow. The seed has within itself the power to do that. The kingdom of God planted inside of us has the power to grow within you. The only effort that we have to make on our part is planting the seed. Have you ever felt intimidated about evangelism? Intimidated about going and spreading the gospel to those around you because you feel like you have to have an answer to every question that they ask? You don't. You simply have to plant a seed. That seed, Jesus himself, is more than capable of growing within that person. I've watched this in my own life as that seed has grown. Times that I felt like I couldn't overcome something, that I couldn't get past something, that I couldn't forgive someone. And I tried and tried and tried and tried and I couldn't do it, but it wasn't about me. It was about the seed growing within me. And over time, that seed had the power to change me. And I was able to do the thing that I thought was impossible because it wasn't me. It was Christ living through me. That's the parable of the mustard seed. So here we have three parables all about seed being planted, all about the kingdom of God being preached and it being in, uh, inside of us. And now, immediately after these parables in Mark, We have the story of Jesus calming the storm. When we just read it a moment ago, we won't read it again, but we're going to break it down a little bit more. Now, what's going on here? They say, do you not care that we're perishing? What is that about? Because this was a fishing boat, it had low sides. They would wait out a little bit, and they would cast nets over the side, and the sides had to be low so that the nets could go, and they wouldn't have to work as hard to get them up. So, As the waves are crashing around, the waves were getting into the boat a lot quicker than they might other boats. So the storm was very fierce. The water's probably up to their ankles by now. They are sinking. Their boat is sinking. If you've ever been on a boat, that's not a good thing to have happen on your boat is that it's sinking. But... This, the way this boat would have been constructed, the stern would have been elevated a little bit. This is where Jesus was at. He was sleeping, it says, on the cushion. The definitive article there implies that the reader is supposed to know this is not just a cushion. He didn't just bring his uh, Texas Rangers uh, cushion that he takes to the ballpark uh, on, the, on the boat. This was one that would have been very important to the boat. It's where the helmsman sat. It's where the person who was steering the boat sat. But he's not sitting there. He's sleeping there. And the stern would have been elevated, so he had not yet felt the water that the disciples were feeling. So imagine, if you will, once again, the disciples in the boat, the low part of the boat, 
Jesus is up there, perfectly fine, sleeping, apparently not too bothered by the storm, and we're drowning down here. And they look up to Jesus and say, do you not care that we're perishing? Now let's give just a a little bit of a snapshot. They woke him up. They said, do you not care? They were doing what we often do. We're down here, God. You're up there. You're not really impacted by what's going on with us, are you? You don't really care that we're perishing. You don't care that things are happening in my life that are difficult because you're up there, some distant, far-off God, just kind of watching, sleeping probably. You don't really care. We accuse God of this. We think he's unaffected by our suffering, and many times we see his lack of intervention as a sign of apathy. He's simply choosing to let us suffer, right? We look at the statistics that I mentioned earlier, horrific torture and death experienced by the apostles, 360 million persecuted Christians, families destroyed, babies beheaded, and whatever else you might be experiencing today than your own life that you find yourself ankle deep in water that's rising and you look up and there's your Lord and Savior sleeping in the stern, doing nothing from your perspective. And you say, why do you not care that I'm perishing. Anybody ever been there before? I think we all have. Do you not care that 1,200 Israelites have been massacred? Do you not care that your church is being persecuted? Do you not care that my life is falling apart and I'm being treated unjustly? Now here's the thing about what was going on. Storms were very common. Specifically on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee lies almost 700 feet below sea level. It's pretty far down there. It is surrounded by highlands. To the northeast is the Mount is Mount Hermon, or Mount Hermon. I'm sorry, which rises over 9,000 feet above sea level. When the cold air from Mount Hermon meets the rising warm air of the sea, it often results in storms that sweep down on the lake from its heights. But these are fishermen; they're used to it, right? So these fishermen, they would have stayed closer to Capernaum and they were unprepared for a storm this far offshore. They're in a fishing boat. This is not a boat that you'd travel in. This was a boat that you'd go out a little distance. You would fish and you'd come back. But Jesus has asked them to do something different. Jesus has asked them to go out further. The disciples' comfort zone was to stay close to shore. They had learned to avoid the dangers that existed when one ventured out too far from home. But there was work to do on the other side. Jesus had instructed them to venture out further than they had ever ventured before. Remember those early Christians? They ventured out beyond their comfort zone. The apostles openly preached the gospel. Their message that translated to rebellion and revolt to the Jewish and Roman state. You know, I don't know that we always think about the fact that the issue was not that the disciples were worshiping Jesus. It was that they worshiped him as Lord. That was the problem that Rome had. Because there was only one Lord as far as they were concerned, and it was Caesar. Rome didn't care who you worshipped as long as the person who had authority over you was Caesar. But they said, Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And that was enough for execution. 
persecution at a large scale. At one point in one day, if I'm recalling the statistic correct, uh, Rome crucified over 3,000 people. And most of it was just at random. They would take them. It was a show of force. This was persecution that you and I have no clue. We, 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 we can't even wrap our minds around as a way of showing that their might could not be surpassed. The penalties were faced uh, in such actions. They, they were faced with passion and fervor because there was work on the other side. As they went into these places where they knew what the persecution, they knew what the cost would be, they knew that they had a job to do, and they faced what they faced with fervor because Jesus had called them to out of their comfort zone. He had called them to move further. Now Jesus gets up, and he instantly calms the storm. The waves settle down, and the winds cease. The text says a great calm came over the sea. I've heard this story preached in an effort to teach uh, that through our faith, we can, we can uh, dispel the storms in our life. Even some that would say that we have control over the elements. And I, I'm not in the business of telling God what he can and can't do, but I don't think that's the purpose of this text. I don't think the point here is to say that through faith, we can speak to our storm and see it dissipate. That's not what's going on here. After calming the storm, the text says, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Can I make a very bold observation here? Jesus did not calm the storm because of their faith. He calmed the storm because of their lack of faith. Consider the backdrop of the Gospels. The writers have addressed their accounts to audiences that were heavily, heavily influenced by Greek Hellenistic culture. So Mark specifically wrote his letter to a Roman church. These would have been people who, uh, <clears throat> they would have uh, understood Greek and Roman mythology. They would have understood the philosophy of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and the classic epics of Homer. This doesn't mean that they were experts in the field, but it would be the equivalent of me speaking about Sigmund Freud or Shakespeare. You, you at least know who I'm talking about. That would have been the similarity if the writer of these Gospels would have used uh, reference. I, I referenced Jaws earlier. Maybe you've never seen it, but you know what I'm talking about, that kind of culture. So the writers would have, would have used these things. So it's very possible that Mark, knowing his audience, which was primarily Roman, highlighted this story to illustrate Jesus' confidence in his own teaching. Because what would happen often is that in Greek stories, the philosophers would teach something, and then in the Greek story, they would go through a storm. This happened on multiple accounts. And through that storm, it would show that they had faith in their own teaching about peace. Very possible that, that Mark highlighted this story to show that Jesus was one of the great thinkers of his day. Obviously, we believe more so, but that he was one of the great thinkers of this day. So part of what he's doing here is that he is showing that Jesus had full faith in his own, his own teaching. Jesus was fully comfortable with sleeping in the boat because he had just talked about when the kingdom of God is rooted deep within you, there is nothing that can pluck it out. Nothing that you experience, nothing you walk through. So Mark is highlighting that Jesus is very, very confident in his preaching. This was also an opportunity for Jesus to prepare them for the trials to come. 
I said a moment ago that Jesus didn't calm the storm because of their faith. He calmed it because of their lack of faith. This was a teaching moment. This was an opportunity for them to grow in their faith, for them to step out of the boat and do more than they thought they could. He's preparing them for the trials to come. Remember that Jesus promised persecution and pain. Every person in that boat would encounter terrible torture and pain for their faith. He called them out of a part of the sea that they were comfortable going into in the same way that he would call them to spread the gospel in places where they would not be welcomed. They would encounter storms, high winds, and rising waves that would seek to consume them. Circumstances that they would not want to endure any more than their present danger. But he was calling them to go there. It was as if he was asking them the question, how deep is the seed? How deep has the seed been planted? Which of those that I mentioned earlier are you? Are you the path where the enemy is going to be able to come and pluck it out? Are you the rocky path where it hasn't taken root? And so with pressure and persecution, you're just going to walk away? Are you those who you might get excited about it, but then worry gets in the way? Are these waves going to be too big for you, for you to do what I've asked you to do? Or has this seed been planted deeply? So that you can stand in the midst of the storm and have faith to endure it. Not faith to see it settle, faith to endure it. That was the challenge. See, the mission wasn't over. Jesus wasn't bothered by the storm because he knew that he had a mission to accomplish. The winds wouldn't deter deter him from that. He called them to sail across the sea because they were hurting people, captive by sin infected with sickness and disease, waiting for the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he was calling them to accomplish what he had set out to do, much like his call would be to preach the gospel and make disciples, even though they would weather storms in the process. This was the first moment that Jesus was beginning to test the very word that he had placed within them. How deep is the seed? The power of the seed. Now, just because their faith failed doesn't mean that the seed failed. And I think often we, we, we struggle with this because we stumble, because we don't have faith, because if you're like me, you're reading the story and you're thinking, I, I, I would have done the same thing they did. Sorry, <laughs> I would have. And you might think, well, maybe I am just one of the other paths. Maybe I am the rocky path. Maybe the seed isn't really in me. Maybe this isn't for me. Maybe the cost really is too high. But the seed didn't fail. Remember the parable of the sower. The sower plants the seed and then he sleeps. The seed does the rest. When the seed has taken root, even when we stumble to keep our faith, the faith within us has the power to keep us on track. Jesus calming the storm increases the faith of the disciples because they realize that he is the Lord over all. He chose to sleep through the storm, did not, cho- did not show his inability or lack of interest. He simply had another plan. Now, like I said, many of us, we, we often, we, we look up at Jesus in the stern and we say, do you not care? It's not that he doesn't care. He has another plan that we can't see. Fear produces peace. What do I mean by that? That seems to contradict some of my earlier points, but bear with me. Immediately after Jesus calms the storm, the text say that the disciples were terrified. Now, that's a little strange, right? Now the calm is peaceful. Now, now they're on a, uh, 
on a Sunday cruise, right? Just going down the Sea of Galilee, but they're terrified? Why would they be terrified? I, I, I would be relieved, right? Well, they're terrified of something different now. They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Suddenly they might be thinking, I don't know, those waves weren't so bad. Now we've got this guy on our boat and I'm not really sure what to do about it, right? They're, they're terrified. Jesus bringing peace to the situation didn't just conquer the fear. It refocused the object of the fear. Because peace is produced when our fear of the Lord is greater than our fear of the storm. 360 million martyrs have marched to their death because they would rather stand favorably before the throne of God than the throne of man. Because they don't have fear of the persecution. They do have fear of God. And they would rather hear, well done, good and faithful servant from him than anything that the throne of man would say. Proverbs 19.23 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it is, <clears throat> sorry, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Is, is this not what Jesus was living out? The fear of the Lord caused him to rest and not be harmed. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. So, is peace promised? I would say yes. But what isn't promised is peace in place of pain. In fact, peace is often brought out of pain. Often when we speak of peace, we speak of an end to conflict, an end of war, sitting around the campfire singing kumbaya, but peace rarely looks that way. I've seen several people post that, uh, we, you know, kind of the, the, the 60s throwback of we need to make love, not war, right? We need to, we need to just have peace. What if, what if we just gave peace a chance, right? And, and, and this whole thing of, you know, what's the, what's the best Christmas wish? I, I just wish that there was world peace. I wish that people would stop being upset about everything and just, I wish, I wish the people would stop having emotions. That's really what I wish. The people would just stop getting upset about stuff. That's ultimately what we're saying. But <clears throat> peace doesn't always look that way. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. It can't be manufactured, and it's not contingent on external factors. It is the natural response of mature disciples to the promise of the coming kingdom as we place faith in Jesus Christ. Now, why am I saying that? Why is it important that this is a fruit of the Spirit? Because a fruit of the Spirit can't be manufactured. What we want is manufactured peace. We want you to stop doing the things you're doing so that I can live a peaceful life. We want to stop having to pay taxes so that I can just do whatever I want. We want uh, everybody to just get along, and that will just solve everything. We want a manufactured peace. You know, I can find peace in my own way, but that doesn't mean it's produced by the Spirit. I can position my life in such a way that I, nothing really ever bothers me anymore, and I can have a manufactured form of peace, but that's not the peace that the Spirit produces. The Spirit produces peace in the midst of conflict, in the midst of turmoil. You know, Oprah Winfrey wrote a book. I don't remember the exact title, but it was something about how to, how to find peace. And I always laughed at that. I never read it, of course, but I always thought, what is chapter one? Be a billionaire? You know, because if you do, then you can create that lifestyle however you want to. But for those of us who aren't, what are we left with? Well, we're left with something better. We're left with peace that we don't have to manufacture. We don't have to have all the right external circumstances. The water doesn't have to be tranquil for us because we have fruit that is being produced by the Spirit. Now, one important distinction to be made is that Christ didn't call us to be peacekeepers. 
He called us to be peacemakers. What's the difference? Well, the Colt Single Action Army Revolver wasn't a peacekeeper. It was a peacemaker. A peacemaker is one who pushes through the storm, takes authority, and overcomes the waves in front of them. When we speak of peace, we need to understand that it will often come in the midst of trials, tribulations, and conflict. Peacemaking isn't about playing nice and being a pushover. Right now, Israel is retaliating for their attack on their people, not taking it lying down. I think about David's conversation in 1 Samuel 38 where he's asking God, he inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue the raiding party? Will I overtake them? And the Lord said, pursue them. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. That's what I think of when I see Israel retaliating. But Israel obliterating her enemy will not ultimately bring peace to Jerusalem. Israel obliterating all of her enemies will not ultimately bring peace to Jerusalem. The reality is these events aren't altogether abnormal in the world. What's taken place there really happens often in different parts of the world, but we really don't pay any attention to it. So why now? Why are we suddenly focused on what's taking place here? Radical groups attacked other nations all the time, but it seems that we're very disheartened when things like this begin to happen to Israel specifically. I think there are many reasons for it, but most importantly, I think that the American church sees Israel as an example for our own prosperity. They were the first ones that God made covenant with. How he interacts with them, we feel like we are owed the same. Books like The Harbinger by Joseph Kahn even go so far as to equate Israel's covenant with our own national Christian heritage. I think when Israel suffers, we begin to feel the waters rising at our own ankles. We begin to ask, these are God's people, right? Lord, do you not care that they're perishing? I think we're bothered when a city whose name literally means peace experiences war. We seem to hold God to some standard that he's supposed to ensure that Israel is never harmed. And I think it bothers us when that doesn't happen. I remember had a friend years ago that his uh, company was moving offices to a different place, and, and he made a comment. He said, I'm really glad that we moved here because there's a Jewish school across the road. And what safer place could you be than across the street from a Jewish school? And I thought, that's never been true. That's never been the case, that the closer you are to Israel, the safer You are. In fact, they have walked through so much conflict. In fact, their name means, Israel means one who wrestles with God. Conflict is what they've been birthed in. Conflict is something that is inherent to the way that God has interacted with them. The promised land, which was really the, is really the primary focus of the Middle Eastern conflict, is a highly sought-after piece of land that inevitably makes its inhabitants a target for conquering nations. We've seen this in Scripture from the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. Because of their prosperity as people, when they were spread around the world, what was the Holocaust about? It was about the Jewish people succeeding taking jobs, and we needed to do something with these people. Because of their success, because of their prosperity, they have been a target of conflict. Why would God's people be made to endure so much pain? Now, I don't claim to understand what's taking place. I'm not a geopolitical expert, and I certainly don't claim to uh, make a claim that I understand what's happening in the spiritual realm, but I do know one thing, that the conflict that Israel has endured through history 
has always been a way that God has used to call them back to himself. And unfortunately, even to this day, Israel is still in rebellion against God. They still have not received their Messiah. Now, that doesn't mean that God is ordaining what is happening in the way that it's happening. Doesn't mean that he's ordaining the slaughter of families and the breaking up and the mutilation of, of infants any more than he did with the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians who did the exact same thing. They also took captives. They also murdered babies. God didn't ordain that, but he did use it. In the midst of that, he brought peace out of conflict. He called Israel back to himself. He brought about peace in unorthodox ways. Remember when we look up at him in the stern and we say, don't you care? It's not that he doesn't care. It's that he has another plan. He simply removes his hand of protection to call his people back to him. Now you might say, but what about the righteous people? What about those who have turned to God and have received Christ as Messiah? There, there were Christians. There was a group from uh, DBU, Dallas Baptist University, that was in Israel at the time. What, what about them? Does he not care about them? Why would he allow something like this to happen when there are righteous people there who have turned to God? Well, he did the same before. He did the same because he utilized people for his purposes. The way that God interacts with Israel is the same throughout history. He never forsakes them. He uses the circumstances to produce peace. Slavery in Egypt ultimately preserved the tribes of Israel from famine. Exiles produced prophecy of the coming peace. And Rome's occupation of Israel resulted in the Prince of Peace giving his life for mankind on a cross, a Roman form of execution. And though they were captors, Greek and Roman influence led to the rapid spreading of the gospel and the expansion of the kingdom of God. As was the case of Joseph preserving his family in Egypt, what was meant for evil... God is using for good. God did raise up people like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to encourage his people and further his plan and purpose even in the midst of trial and tribulation. So there is promise and peace. And it's found in the words of those three men who stood in front of King Nebuchadnezzar in his fiery furnace and said, If God whom we serve exists then he is able to deliver us from the blazing, fiery furnace and from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we will not serve your gods. The only thing that will bring true peace to Jerusalem is that they turn their hearts to God and receive their Messiah. This is what scripture speaks of in Zechariah 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from where he is. He will build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the royal honor, and he will sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on that throne, and there will be harmony between the two. That's talking about Jesus. That's talking about the Messiah who they have yet to receive as a people. Some have, but as a people group, they have not. And God will continue to get their attention until they do. So that is my, is my prayer for Israel today, is that they will turn their attention toward God, and they will turn their attention toward their Messiah. The significance of Jesus' parables of the kingdom leading up to the powerful teaching of peace is that it is the hope of the kingdom in us that produces true peace. 
We press forward through the storm because we know that our Lord is sitting on the throne and that one day that throne will physically sit in Jerusalem. We have peace because we know that nothing can oppose that plan. Nothing can, can keep, it, keep that from happening. One day, as Revelation 21.4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's what we look forward to. We don't find our peace in everything getting better. Peace won't be found when this war between Israel and their attackers is over. Not true peace. True peace will only be found when Jesus Christ takes his place on the throne and fulfills all that was prophesied. He is the Prince of Peace. That is what will bring peace. But here's the beautiful thing about us as spirit-filled believers. We get to experience that today. We get to experience a deposit. So the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is a deposit of the kingdom to come. We don't have to just sit back and wait. And we're not going to experience it in its fullness, of course. But we can have that peace that passes understanding. Philippians chapter 4 says, and verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord when things are going really well, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You've got to consider that Paul was writing on a very expensive form of paper. He's not going to repeat himself if it wasn't necessary. He's saying rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. I think he's serious. Do we rejoice always? Do we rejoice in the midst of persecution? Do we rejoice when we flip on the news and we see the turmoil going on? Do we rejoice? Why would he rejoice? Paul, do you not know what's going on? He certainly did. He was beheaded for the gospel. He was stoned for the gospel. He was alienated by his own people for the gospel. He certainly understood it. He would be one of the captives today if he were in Jerusalem. But he said rejoice. So if he can say rejoice... Do you think us sitting here in Cleburne, Texas, with our woes, can rejoice? Do you think we can, again, rejoice and find peace that passes understanding? As we weather the storm, keep the faith and press forward through trial and tribulation, the Spirit will produce in us that peace that passes understanding. It's not something we have to muster up. The seed has the power to produce within us. If we abide in him and he abides in us, the fruit will be produced. This is what allowed the early church to prosper in the midst of persecution. What led the apostles to continue preaching even when they faced death. And what I pray will lead those believers in captivity in Gaza to produce the largest profession of the gospel in history. My prayer is that the message of Christ would spread like wildfire and that the kingdom of God would be expanded. What an awesome testimony that would be. Now maybe you're hearing this today and you feel like you're so far away from the call. You know, there, there's, there's talk that, you know, this, this level of persecution may come into America. I, I really don't know. 
I think there's a lot of fear-mongering out there. But what if it did? What would our churches look like? We're in the Bible Belt. Everybody's a Christian here, right? Would it be that way? If you walk down the street and you said, do you profess Christ? And right now everyone's like, well, yeah, of course. I, I go to church on Christmas and Easter. Would we even say that? Or would our churches be filled with a select few who are actually allowing that seed of the kingdom to be planted deep? Ask yourself today, would you be here? Would you be in this room? Or are you one of the others that were mentioned where the persecution and the pressure would pull it out? And I don't say this to scare anyone. I don't say this to, to, to be discouraging. Maybe you found this message to be encouraging. Maybe you haven't, but it is encouraging. Because the reason why the martyrs were able to do what they did is because of what was in them. Because of the kingdom message that was within them. Maybe you're not ready to face that. And that's fine. I, I'm not either. I don't want that. I'm not marching to it. But why don't we start small? Why don't we refocus the way that we interact with those who mistreat us? I, I saw um, on, on Facebook today somebody posted something about... I just don't understand how you can love someone so evil. I don't understand how you can love those who are doing this. That's just the part of my faith that I'm not willing to go to. And I didn't, but I really wanted a message and to say, well, I'm sorry to break this to you, but that's what it's about. doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that we always will succeed in it, but we are called to love our enemies. And maybe you can't go there. I get that. But maybe we could start having grace with the person who cut us off at the intersection baby steps, right? I got a call today from a telemarketer, and I'd like to tell you that it went really well. It did not. Um, and I, as I'm typing the sermon, I felt very convicted and had to repent of it. But it's those small steps, those small steps that we have to take. We need to pursue peace as a part of our daily routine. Can we rejoice when things get difficult? You know, how, how great would it be if our tire blows on the highway and we're like, you know what, God, thank you so much that I'm going to take a moment to pause and think about you, right? <laughs> as I'm sitting on the highway waiting for AAA. What if that became our mindset? What if we chose not to be overwhelmed by our first world problems? What if we chose to allow some things just to happen that really aren't that big of a deal. And ultimately, we need to trust the seed. Remember, the seed has the power to transform. Remain in him, and he will remain in you. And lastly, and I mean this in all seriousness, turn off the news. Turn it off. So much of what we're saturated with is just this overload of agenda, overload of fear-mongering. Be informed, but there's ways to do that without getting a, a, an avalanche of information. Get the bare essentials. I think everyone in this room remembers a time where it wasn't as easy to get the information. Go back to that, because there's so much out there. You know, I, and I say this, I know that there were losses that happened during COVID, and I don't mean to belittle that, but, you know, it's, it's really funny to me that the new normal looks a whole lot like the old normal did. But three years ago, we thought the world was coming to an end. You know, get in the Word, read it appropriately, be optimistic. 
I had a conversation with someone recently, and I mentioned that I have a very optimistic view of the future. I think that the church is going to grow stronger and that the victory of Christ will become more pronounced and the gospel will be preached. And they said, well, you're still young. And I said, no, I've just read the Bible and I've read it the right way. And I will tell you this, if you read, this, if you read Scripture, if you read the end times, if you read Re- Revelation and you do not have an optimistic view of the end times, you need to reread it. Because the optimistic view is that no matter what comes our way, no matter what tribulation, no matter what we face, we're on the winning side. And you know what? A winning team doesn't watch the scoreboard. They play the game. So turn off the news. Stop talking about how bad things are getting. Because in reality, they're really not that much worse than they ever have been. We just know about more. The world's always been a dangerous place full of sinners who do sick things. So let's play the game. Let's preach the gospel. Let's do what we're supposed to do. I will say this as I close today. I've struggled for a long time with the question, what does it mean to be a mature disciple of Christ? And this is the answer that I've come to. A mature disciple of Christ preaches the gospel, makes disciples no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. If you're not there today, then I would say you're not fully discipled. I'm in that company too. I'm not there but I know that seed has been planted deep within me and I'm not gonna let those roots be uprooted just because it's difficult. I shared some of this with someone today and they said, that's a lot easier said than done. I said, yeah, it sure is. It's impossible. But luckily I don't have to do it. The seed does the work for me. I just have to be obedient. I just have to abide in him and he abides in me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this word and I pray that it would be one that would stick with us that it would keep us up at night, that it would, we would struggle with it, that we, we would realize how far we come short of what you've called us to be, but that you're the one that makes the difference between where we are and what, where we're supposed to be, and you grow us in the process. I do pray for the people of, of Israel today. I pray for your people. I pray that you would lead them back to you. pray that you would keep them safe. I pray that there would be peace in Jerusalem on this side of heaven, but most importantly, I pray for the day and I look forward to the day that you sit on the throne. And I thank you for the deposit of of that reality that we have in your spirit today that I can take with me as I interact with those around me, as I do the mundane things of every day that I can have that peace. But I don't have to get upset when somebody cuts me off in the intersection. I don't have to speak poorly to the telemarketer. I don't have to treat people the way that we're all conditioned to treat people. You've called us to be different. And yes, it is easier said than done, but that's the beauty of it. Because when it happens, we know it wasn't us. We know it was you and your grace. I thank you for what you're doing in us. And I thank you for what you're going to continue to do. I believe that you, who has begun a good work in us, will see it through to completion. Thank you for the testimonies. In Jesus' name, amen.